So as the student pastor here, I feel like it would be fun to give you a brief report of uh, how our student ministries are doing uh, here, but I didn't want to be boring and give like a State of the Union address, so I wanted to think of a fun, creative way to do this. So here are my top five things I have said, maybe yelled at, to a student over the past year. They're all fun, they're all weird, and let's go. Number one, don't lick him. Don't know why I had to say that, but that was something I had to say to a student. Uh, Two, do not put that in your belly button. I remember that one was at a Reds game, um, and it involved Sour Patch Kids or something like that. Number three, okay, who took his mattress and hit it, and where's it at? Honestly, I was proud of this one. Like, it was a good prank, but it just wasn't timely. We were exhausted from church camp, and we had to move on. And number four, this one hurts. Please delete my high school prom picture from your Instagram. It is not funny anymore. I don't know why you like to have pictures of me without a beard. I don't know where you found the picture, but anyways. And number five, rounding it out, is please do not put your dirty sock in that sleeping boy's mouth ever again. Again, I was proud of the prank. I really was. I was proud of the prank, but Tommy has told me over and over again, I got to be an adult. And so uh, it's on video somewhere. So if, uh, if you're around, actually two of the boys that are involved, two of those were right here. But what I love about this list, what I love about this list is it is high school boys. I'm sure you already assumed that, but it's high school boys, and they are just being boys, normal standard issue boys. And I promise you, I promise, we are learning about Jesus, but we are also having fun while we're doing that. You might peek into a classroom here on Sunday morning, and uh, you might hear more laughter inside of there than you would uh, see at a comedy club, but really, what we're doing is we are doing life together. This is not just a Sunday thing where we come together and clap hands and sing songs and, and leave. We are doing life together. We're building relationships, we're becoming deep and close friends, and we're having fun and pointing our hearts towards Christ. You see, here in student ministry, one of our goals is to make this place the most welcoming place in the world. In my mind, this is one of the ways that we are going to reach more students. A few months ago, we were headed to prepare, or we were headed to head off to Michigan and prepping for one of our biggest uh, high school trips of the year. And uh, because this is such a big outreach event, we uh, meet a lot of new people, a lot of new students. And so we challenge our students, like, go out and invite your friends. Go to your school, invite friends. Text people, invite your friends. And uh, so we meet new people. And one of the new students that, uh, our newer students that I met on this trip, um, he texted me a couple weeks ago, and this is what he said. In life sometimes, I feel like people say they are there for me, but they aren't really. But that's one thing I can say. I do feel loved at First Church. When Darren asked me uh, to teach about this idea of investing in relationships, I kept coming back to this idea of love. So many people have continued and are pouring and are continuing to pour into the life of this young man, and he is feeling it, and he's understanding it, and you can see in his text, it took time for him to feel loved. Our church family had to show him over and over again that they were there for him in order for him to translate that into a feeling of love. And I couldn't have been more proud of our church uh, family in that moment. Because our students are serving on Sunday morning, and you let them serve next to you. Our students are uh, here in the service, and you welcome them in like they are a church family. And we feel like we are a part of this church family. And I could not be more proud of that, because our job as Christians is to make sure that everybody feels like they are somebody. And the best way to do that is to invest in them to show that they are not only loved by us, but also Jesus. 
I think today in our culture, there are many roles that the church can fill, and there are many things that the church can fix, and the most important, in my opinion, is love. Jesus said it best when someone asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And he replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets, notice all, everything, hangs on these two commandments. Now, there might be, and there definitely is, a more important section of Scripture that talks about who God is and what he's done for us. I won't argue that, but I can't find another more important Scripture for us to obey than this one right here. If you think about it, Christian or not, uh, we know and can agree that obeying commands given to us by Jesus are not only helpful for our lives, but other people in it. Even people that do not believe that Jesus was the Son of God will agree that he was a great teacher. So if you plug any commandment that Jesus gives us, you will see the foundation of it is love. That's why Jesus' teaching can be summed up in this one verse when he says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Why? Because everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In 2018, I think there are two words that, can, uh, that are completely misunderstood. The first is Christian, and the second is church. Both are nouns. One describes a single follower of Jesus, while the other describes a collective following of Jesus. And all of the grammar people out here will tell us that a noun is useless without a verb. And today, you hear all kinds of verbs that follow up these two words. A church is, a Christian is. If Jesus were playing fill in the blank here, my thought, based on the scriptures that we just read, Jesus would put love. The church is love. But unfortunately, we've taken a wrong turn, and people view the church as something other than love. And you hear it all the time. Just spend some time on social media. You'll see the church is selfish. The church is judgmental. The church is hateful. I think this is happening to churches across America because sometime at some point we got too caught up in focusing on the noun church and Christian. I go to church, I'm a Christian. Sometimes it seems that we only want to focus on the title without doing the work. But if we look closely into Jesus's life, we'll see that he had nothing to do with titles. He didn't want to be a part of it because Jesus was about grace, Jesus was about love, and Jesus was about people. All of those things take time and energy and effort and investment. Just like any other noun in the dictionary, the nouns Christian and the noun church are useless without action, without a verb. And this work that we are being called to is an investment. It takes time. So what if we, for, we as a church, stop focusing so much on our title and focus more on the actual work that needs to be done? I think that if we as a church, if we get this right, it will take us someplace farther and far more exciting than just a title alone. So this morning, I want to paint a picture of what this love looks like and what this looks like to invest in the people that are right in front of us so that way, one day, everybody will know that we are disciples and followers of Jesus Christ because of the investments that we made into their lives. 
If you have your Bibles with you, we'll start in Mark chapter 2, uh, and we'll be looking at a story where Jesus was meeting one of his disciples for the very first time. And if you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be on the screen, so you can follow along there. But uh, to set this up a bit, to give us some context clues and whatnot, here are some things that we need to know about what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing at this part of the text. So Jesus was fairly early on in his ministry, and in the story we're looking at today, we pick up right after he had healed a paralyzed man. And because of that, um, he's blowing people's minds. Like, literally, like, they're amazed at what they're seeing because not every day do you see somebody healing a paralyzed person. And so um, these people are following him around, like, because of the amazing things that he's done. And I'm not talking, like, following him on social media, but, like, stage five, like, following behind him. Like, every step he takes, they are ready to see the next thing that he's going to do. They're probably sitting on the edge of their seats, like, I wonder what Jesus is going to do next because he's done some incredible things. Just before they healed the paralyzed man, they saw him catch a bunch of fish on a bad fishing day. He turned a bunch of water into wine, and uh, he's just doing incredible things. He healed a man with leprosy, so they are literally ready to have their minds blown every second that Jesus interacts with people. So Mark 2, it says, then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many other tax collectors and other uh, disreputable sinners. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked this question, Why does he eat with such scum? Now, let's pause here for a moment just to kind of um, pull some things from that text. First, uh, Levi, you may not be familiar with that name, but you might be familiar with the name Matthew. So Matthew was actually Levi's Greek name. So throughout the rest of the day, that's what we're going to refer to him by is Matthew. And so uh, we also read that Matthew was sitting at his tax collector's booth, meaning he was a tax collector. And so for a long time, like in like uh, Sunday school, we were always taught like a tax collector would just take more than they should. Like they're supposed to take uh, $20, but they take 30 and they pocket the other 10. That's what we've kind of always read and heard, but uh, that's, that's not untrue, but it's not the full story of a tax collector. You see, they are t- uh, collecting taxes for uh, Rome, and at that time, Rome was ginormous. If you picture uh, like England to India, I mean, that's how big of a land mass they have, and so the only way to govern uh, a land that big in that time is to get a giant army, and in order to pay for that giant army, army, you need to collect a bunch of taxes. But the problem was, is Rome was not only giant, but they were known as just absolutely brutal people. Like they were murderers, rapists, thieves. Like if you name it, if it's bad, Rome probably did it. So Matthew, who Jesus would just accepted an invite to dinner from, is literally associated with people that are ruining their lives. He's associated with Rome. So this is why when people saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Here's what Jesus replied to them. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick do. I have come to call not those who are righteous, but those who are sinners. I love when Jesus teaches this way. 
I feel like his disciples were sitting at the table and they're like, ooh, Jesus just got him. And if they had like Twitter or like, I don't know, maybe they're just writing it down, like they're writing down exactly what he said. Like this is important stuff because Jesus is once again blowing the minds of the religious leaders. Why does he eat with such scum? This isn't just happening 2,000 years ago. This is happening right now. Doesn't this break your heart that people think this about other people? But not only that, people start to believe this about themselves. Our, our society does too good of a job of convincing people like drug addicts or homeless people or simply somebody on food stamps and low-income housing that they are unlovable and classified as scum. Now for Matthew... We don't get to read about what he was thinking when Jesus and this giant mob of people start walking towards him. But I'm willing to bet that he was asking the same thing that Darren talked about last week and the same thing that thousands of other northern Kentuckians are asking us. Do you see me? An article in the New York Times titled, Human Touch, How Isolation, How Social Isolation is Killing Us, said, Every day I see variations at both the beginning and end of life. A young man abandoned by friends as he struggles with opioid addictions. An older woman getting by on tea and toast, living in filth, no longer able to clean her cluttered apartment. In these moments, it seems the only thing worse than suffering a serious illness is suffering it alone. That's Matthew. He's suffering from isolation in his community because of his job. Nobody wants to associate with him. And the Pharisees are so worried about what's going on inside of their walls, inside of their church, and what's going on inside of there, that they could care less that somebody's outside, not inside of there, and outcasted by the people. And Jesus is telling them, you have it all wrong. Two times when Jesus says, follow me, and yes, I will have dinner with you, he is saying to Matthew, I see you. Now, I'm willing to bet that at some point, all of us in this room can relate to Matthew and this question. Do you see me? What does that mean? It means that all of us are hurting. Because life is hard. And because of that, it's safe to say, if you are human, you are hurting. But look, Matthew, he began a process of healing the moment he decided to follow Jesus. Can we again say the same for us? If you are human, you are hurting. If you are here, you are healing. Every single one of us at some point in our lives have been deeply hurt by something or someone. But every single one of us that are here today, whether we are followers of Christ yet or not, or even if we even understand this yet or not, are healing in some way. We began a process of healing. Now here is why this is so important to understand. All of us can think of at least five people that are not here today. Hopefully you wrote them down on your My Five card that we've been praying over during this 28 days of prayer. Think about them for a moment. What does that mean for them? It means they are not hurting and healing, they are just hurting. Because they are not part of a loving community like this that God promises to do his work through. They are like Matthew and millions of others, outcasted by this world, saying, I am struggling and asking, do you see me? 
They are looking for something or somebody to help them. And we as the church, as the noun, have work to do to see and tell them that healing is genuinely and realistically available. In March of 2017, I sat right over in this section during my ordination service, and this was a special day for me for so many reasons, but one that uh, I, I will carry forever is uh, my buddy um, and now co-worker, Brian. Uh, he shared with me a bit of advice as I started out in ministry. He shared three parts uh, with me, but I want to share today with you uh, his second uh, part of advice because I think it's so relevant to this idea of investing in other people and what this practically looks like. After loving God, loving people is the most important thing in ministry and life. This truth is something that I wish I would have learned earlier in ministry. I would have sa- it would have saved me some heartache in my first ministry. Leadership is key in ministry, but you have to balance loving people and taking people somewhere. Love people more than your ideas, your visions, your programs. Our church is full of incredible people that I love dearly. You will have the opportunity to serve and love people. There will be times when you want to watch a ball game and a student needs to talk. Talk to them. There will be times when you need to to finish preparing for an event and a crisis comes up with a family. Be with that family. There are times that you will be preparing for a message and a parent drops by to talk. Talk to them. You'll also care for people in times of crisis. You'll stand at their hospital bedside when they are sick and finally at their graves. In these times... People invite us to be a part of some of the most uh, intimate and challenging parts of their lives. This is ministry. And this isn't just ministry for vocational pastors. or uh, This is ministry for anybody that puts on the title of Christian. We experience a love, a love that we cannot articulate. And we can't be accused of hiding it or hoarding it. We have to share it with the world. Oftentimes, it only requires you to be present. Do you see me? Maybe you'll hear that uh, exact thing sometime this week from somebody. Honestly, you probably won't hear it uh, verbally because most people have said it so often and been passed by uh, so often that they just don't say it anymore. You might see it in their eyes, though. You might see it in their posture. You might see it in, um, in the way that they are talking. You might see it in the words that they are saying to other people. You might not hear this exact statement, but if you get an inclination that it is being asked, let me challenge you to respond with, how can I help you? But not only ask it, do it. Meet a need of somebody. If they need to talk, lend an ear. If they need to pray, pray with them. If they need a hug, give them a hug. Meet a need with your presence. No strings attached. This isn't an opportunity for you to slip a church in the park invite in their purse when they're not looking or post your good deed on Facebook. Jesus explains the why way better than I can when he says, You are a light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light Shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is my challenge because when you truly invest in someone, something will stir in their hearts and lives are transformed and love is formed. 
Let them see your good works, that, that they may be intrigued by them, and they might draw themselves in, and then they will ask questions. Questions like, what's different about you? What makes you tick? Why do you care about me? I can't believe you are so involved. I can't believe you gave something to me with no strings attached. I can't believe you are involved in my life and that you are loving me and that you're not judging me and you seem to care so much more than anybody else. Why? And that's when you tell them so that one day they may understand. Jesus literally did three things to place Matthew on this process of healing. He noticed him, he talked to him, and he had dinner with him. Sometimes we discredit ourselves when we think about sharing the gospel with others. We think that we need to get them here and let the church and the pastors do all of this work. But let me tell you, ministry is not a microphone. When I worked in retail, I had more interactions with non-Christians in one day than I do in a week working here in the church. So let God use you You are a light in this world, and your presence is far greater than any spotlight or platform. I was telling you earlier about a bunch of students that we took to Michigan uh, for this trip, and um, it uh, it was a lot of fun, and a lot of great things happened, but... I want to share a moment with you that uh, will stick with me for a long time about how one of my students invested in prayer. We were on the last couple days of preparation for this trip, and we had a couple of spots that opened up, and so I went into the high school room, and I let them know, hey, we have some spots that are open, and I want you guys to, again, work hard to invite the one, the person that does not yet know Jesus, the person that is not in a healthy community of believers, And so one of my students came up to me afterwards and said, "Um, I have this list. I have this list. It's tattered. I wish I had it to show you. And it has a bunch of names on it. And she's been praying over these people for a long time. And she said, I sent a text to this student. A few minutes later, uh, I get an email, and it says that he had signed up. I was so proud in that moment of, of my student for uh, doing that and working hard in that way. And so the trip happens, and we get there, and uh, it runs from Monday to Saturday. So Friday was the last day of the trip. And basically what it is is you have a lot of free time during the day and, and small group time, but you go into this big arena for a session. It's basically a church service with worship time and teaching and uh, so I get a text message from uh, the, uh, the student that sent the invite. And she said, can we meet real quick? Because uh, I feel like my friend isn't connecting. He's not, uh, he's not experiencing what I hope that he would experience on this trip. And he's not, um, he's not connecting with the messages that are being taught. And I said, sure. So we got our small group leader. And uh, we all three sat together. And uh, we talked about this. But she decided... Our solution was to just continue to do what she's been doing, praying. So she decided in that moment that we just were going to pray together, uh, pray for uh, him and, and praying that uh, specifically God would be able to communicate with him in a way that he's never heard before, that he would be able to resonate and connect with the, with the message that was being shared and the, and the teaching and the, uh, and the worship in that time. And so we prayed. It was powerful. It was one of the most powerful prayers that I've experienced. And so um, Friday evening comes along, and we get everybody into the session. And, and I keep looking over my shoulder, and I knew where they were sitting because I wanted to see if I could tell if he was connecting um, from, uh, during, the, during the time we were there. 
And so I kept peeking over, and I couldn't tell. I, I wasn't sure. He was focusing. He wasn't on his phone. And so uh, last moment of the trip, they do this uh, thing called an invitation. It's very similar to what we do here uh, after a service where um, they offer a time for people to come down front and, and make a, a claim or a proclamation that they are followers of Christ. Or uh, This year it was the idea that they were stepping out of the darkness and into the light. They had these giant spotlights on the front of the stage, and uh, you you can go down and you can stand underneath it and the light would come on signifying that you are out of the darkness and into the light. And so um, the last opportunity for this, I feel a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and I see their small group leader and uh, she's pointing down and this is what I see. He uh, and his group of students went down uh, to stand under this light, and uh, I will tell you, I've never ran down a bunch of stairs any faster in my life. I think if the Reds won the World Series, I would be slower than what I was in that moment. I was just so full of joy to know and to see that this long process, from a list that a student had made years ago and prayers that she had prayed daily, to this. The next picture you'll see that I'm pointing. I'm pointing back at our church family. We're sitting right behind them. And I'm telling him in this moment, this is your church family. These people invest in you. These people love on you. These people care for you. And these people prayed exactly for this moment just hours before. It was incredible. As I was heading back to my seat, I I looked at the small group leader that was with us in that prayer, and I said, if anyone ever questions me about the power of prayer, I'm going to share this story with them. It's not very often that we see a prayer answered so quickly, and often when we do, I wonder if it's God just reminding us of his power. I couldn't have been more proud of this student that sent the invite, but more importantly, the fact that she reminded me of the power of prayer. Church of the Park is our adult version of this type of trip. We don't do this for us. We don't do this for a big party together as a campus, and the second that we do make it about us is the second that we need to stop doing this. We do this for them. We do them for this for these types of moments, the one, the people that do not yet know Jesus. So let me ask you, are you making an investment in prayer for them? I know a student that is, and I know the results of that type of prayer. If you haven't grabbed a My Five card yet, they are uh, outside these doors, they are at the Welcome Center, I encourage you to do so. I believe in the power of this. I saw it play out. Put that card in a, play, in a place that, that you could see it every day, and, and don't feel bad that you're using it as a reminder to pray. That's actually very healthy. Use it as a reminder to pray every day for those five people. And every, every morning at 9.23, we are doing this 28 days of prayer. We're doing this live as a church on Facebook and, and Twitter and on our website. And I encourage you to join us if you haven't already because um, some incredible things have already uh, started to happen because of prayer. But since we're already together this morning, since we're already together as a church family, what a better thing to do than just take this moment to stop. Take this moment to stop and pray for our five. I'm going to encourage you to do that for the next couple of moments, and I'll finish with another prayer for us collectively. So in the next minute or so, just pray for those people. If you haven't written a card, do it on your notes. Do it in your mind. Do it somewhere where you know of these five people. Spend these next few moments in prayer.
Father God, we're so thankful that you give us this incredible ability to connect with you, the creator of the universe. Help us use it to its full advantage. Help us to remember to constantly be in prayer. We know the power of it. We've experienced the power of prayer. I pray that all of these people, all of these names that are just leaving our minds right now and, and headed up to you, that they, that, uh, that they are able to, at one point in their lives, know and experience the same love that we feel as a church family. We love these people. We care for these people. We're investing in these people. Help us, um, help us understand how to move them in, into a process of healing so that way they could be surrounded by a community of believers like this. We pray that Church in the Park is, is an opportunity to meet so many people, that we're not going to sit around and just chat with our friends that we haven't seen in a while, but we will find people that haven't been to church and haven't experienced this loving grace and, and uh, acceptance from your son Jesus. We're so thankful for him because of his example that he's given us to love others. Help us do this well as we invest in the one. Help us be reminded that every Sunday morning, this is for the one. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. One of the things I love about student ministry here is there are certain moments that remind me of when I was uh, just a little boy sitting in a First Church pew uh, when I was younger. See, I grew up here at First Church, and uh, I uh, have some incredible memories. I grew up with a single mom, and uh, she raised my sister and I, and I hesitate uh, to say by herself. Not only did my family play a huge role in stepping in the church did also. It was like a second home. I remember countless times when L.D. Campbell, the senior pastor at the time, was at birthday parties, at ball games. I have countless memories of riding in the back seat of this church couple named uh, Dewey and Linda Salone. I can't remember where we were headed, but I can vividly remember that car, and I remember Dewey in the front seat driving. This one memory that I always go back to is uh, around Christmas time. Uh, we are all headed to church, and I don't remember why, but uh, I stepped into this room, and I see Mr. Guy, and I see a bunch of people that I don't know, and I see a bunch of presents. And uh, I was so bummed because I wanted to be the Santa Claus. Like, I wanted to wear the hat and hand out all the gifts to all the people and, uh, because I thought all the presents were for everybody in the room. They weren't. They were for my family. I don't understand why. I, I didn't. I remember as a little kid. I didn't understand why. I don't remember what those presents were. But I remember how they made us feel. I say that and I tell you this because this place, First Church, is a family. And we love one another well. Always have, always will. We do life together. We hurt together. We rejoice together. We do this well. But are we working hard enough to ensure that everyone that we interact with experiences this type of love? 
Friends, I'm passionate about this. Call me naive, but I believe that this is the only thing that works. I believe the local church is the best equipped organization to meet the needs of the world today, not the government. The government stepped in because the church didn't step up. What our world is desperately seeking for is an unconditional love that only God can provide, and it flows through us. We need you. This is why the church exists. Years ago, Jesus took 12 men, Matthew being one of them. He invested in these men, and they forever changed the world. What could he do with 2,500 followers in northern Kentucky who say, I don't want to come to this building just to consume all of this, but I want to give it away? I read a story a couple of years ago about a man who had no interest in a spiritual life, but his next-door neighbor was a Christian. And they had a relationship, as most neighbors probably would. It was very casual. The non-Christian had a journal about a day uh, in his life that he wasn't ready for. It was about a day when his wife that was diagnosed with cancer died. In his journal, he wrote very clearly his thoughts. It says, I was in total despair. I went through the funeral preparations and services like I was in a trance. And after the service, I went to the path along the river, and I walked all night. But I did not walk alone. My neighbor, afraid for me, I guess, stayed with me all night. He did not speak. He did not even walk beside me. He just followed me. When the sun finally arose over the river, he came over to me and said, let's go get some breakfast. I go to church now. My neighbor's church. A religion that can produce that that kind of caring and love my neighbor showed me is something I want to find more about. I want to be like that. I want to love and be loved like that for the rest of my life. I don't remember what any of those presents were. But I remember how those people made me feel. Invest in this. Invest in people. Invest in praying for these people. Invest in love. And when they ask why, you tell them so that one day they may understand. Will you pray with me?